0: Two, three. Hi, I'm Gary David, and I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds.
1: Our, our guest today has a bit of a varied background, being a physics teacher. A heavy metal aficionado, and I'm not quite sure how often those two things go together. A hockey player. Not often enough. Not often enough. A, a vegan cookie baker. A rhetorician. I practice that word many times. A rhetorician have come together. All these areas have come together for our guests in very interesting ways. Trying to teach high school students physics ended up being really good preparation for trying to keep the attention and reach executives. Listening to heavy metal music allowed her to be sensitive to subtle aspects of a bigger sound or a bigger environment. Playing hockey, not surprisingly, taught her the concept of hard work and teamwork. <laughs> Studying rhetoric gave her the understanding of how to communicate information to people in ways that will connect with them. Along with, a big part of her work is diagnosing problems that people have when communicating with one another. And also, Baking cookies taught her the importance of baking cookies because who doesn't love cookies? It's a very important part. The key of all of these things for our guests is to pull these various strands, these various points of work together and integrate them into a workable framework that helps expand not just her capacity, but her client's capacity to understand their worlds, approach their challenges, and act with ways that will have impact. And as we all come to understand the importance of systems, and we're coming back to this moment of recognizing that systems are important, we also understand that the challenges associated with systems are bigger than any one perspective can understand, handle, or solve. This means that to handle bigger design problems that are systemic, that are wicked problems, that are big picture problems. We need to have more integrated solutions that are inspired from multiple different perspectives.
0: Hey, Amen. So today on Experience by Design, we are super excited to introduce y'all, or maybe you already know her, to Jen Vercili. And Jen is the Chief Design Strategy Officer at MadPow, which is an experienced design firm here in Toasty, New England. Very and toasty. today's conversation is very toasty, um, so we cover a lot of different ground in, in today's episode, which makes sense since, as Gary just pointed out, Jen has covered a ton of different ground and areas in her career. Now, the main theme that we we want to kind of drill into our heads as we're, as we're kind of jumping into this is the importance of that we need to link theory and practice through things like participatory design, which is a kind of vehicle for delivering human-centered solutions that brings together how we think about ideas, how we frame them, and then how we actually put them into action. And the key is this, it's delivering solutions isn't just what we have to do by itself. We also need to find ways to change behavior, to make things sustainable. So in this case, we explore how changing mindsets and things like nudging, a term you might be familiar with, can be a key strategy for helping change behavior. We also discuss how communication and messaging is a key component to accomplishing behavioral changes. This is something that's super important that I I learned a lot about from this conversation. And we also need to know what makes people tick. You know what are your goals and how do we help and use tools when things are given to people how do we help them be able to use them the key is though we can't do this in silos right to tackle the big kind of challenges the integration solutions that gary's talking about also these wicked problems all these things that we're facing we need to combine our resources and work together ultimately how keeping a beginner's mindset for every single project Keeps Jen engaged and keeps her continuously learning. So definitely something that we took away from the conversation. We're excited to share it with you. And let's dive on in.
1: I, you know speaking of COVID, I was wondering. I know that you have a background in science communication. Yeah, I was I was looking at. We're talking about um, that for an hour instead. Let's yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, was, I was wondering about this thing because the extent to which, you know, the idea that wear a mask to protect yourself versus wear a mask to protect others or it's your patriotic duty, right? To yeah. protect, you know, you know back, back like buying war bonds in World War II, you, you need to yeah. buy war bonds because it's your patriotic duty to defend the country. And it was just really interesting as I was looking at some of this and thinking about pro-social behavior. Yeah. How do you design messaging to kind of connect with people's sense of not just internal self-interest, but obligation to, yeah. if not others, but to this ideal of, you
2: know, God and country or something like that? I So we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but if you want to, let's do it. I love that you're asking that because, I mean, to to be frank, that is, <laughs> excuse me, that is. Absolutely, the part that is missing in my, my from my lowly position, not at all related to the world of communication design. Now, I mean, my my work in grad school, I actually focused on a little bit of that. So, I want to answer that question actually. But, um, you know, I, over the last several years, I've I've really kind of drifted away from that domain, not by conscious choice, just my design work has taken me different directions. But it continues to be a sort of passion for me, and I watch from the bleachers, fully aware I'm a spectator, but I'm over here like that meme of Leonardo DiCaprio, like pointing at the TV with the can- beer can in his hand. He's like, like, I'm just, that, that's how I feel because what you've just described hits a, such a core piece of this. So there's a lot of different ways to think about people and frameworks, you guys know that. Um, but what you're what you hit on is one that I really leaned hard on when I was doing some of my work in grad school uh, which was is the cultural cognition project at yale i don 't know if you're familiar with any of their work, but they basically do a lot of research around identity protective cognition, motivated reasoning, you know basically the dynamic that as humans we are we evolve cognitively to rely on the um, information and knowledge and expertise of others because especially as the world has become more information right? right? we don't have the time, the energy, or the cognitive bandwidth to process and make decisions about all kinds of information, especially if there's some specialty stuff going around. So with that, we obviously lean to and look to folks that we share values with or people who appear to share our values and are part of our social in-group. And so we kind of use that as a shortcut. Now, here's the challenge. Depending on your values, the way that the messaging is framed is going to then either you know be something you reject or not reject, and it's not as simple as like a, a just cognitive you know bias. Like this isn't just confirmation bias. That's such an oversimplified version. But um, I like the framework that the Cultural Cognition Project uses because what they've done is they've basically built on. Um, the group grid um, mm-hmm. world of work. If you're, I'm sure you guys know all about that stuff, right? And they talk about individualist versus um, communitarian values on one spectrum, and then on the other, hierarchical versus egalitarian values. And what I love, and I think is so beautiful about that, because it's something that it's a it's a model. All models are wrong, but some are useful, right? But each of those quadrants gives you this really wonderful look at, like, so people who are hierarchical and um, individualist. They're primed to feel threatened by messaging that really emphasizes limits on personal freedoms and things like cap and trade for climate change and whatever, you know, anything that is like, again, you know, goes against hierarchical and individual values. And then, you know, the same for all these other four quadrants. So vaccination, I've I've found this so interesting because some of the work I did in grad school, I even did on the topic of childhood vaccination. It's kind of easy to take certain topics and put them into different quadrants and say, OK, for climate change, when you talk about climate change and you really emphasize the communitarian, egalitarian, we're all in this together, like we're ruining our planet, like your responsibility to your fellow humans, that really hits all the you know numbers for the, the communitarian and egalitarian worldview um, folks. But for the folks that are hierarchical and individualist, they're not awful people. They're not naturally selfish assholes or anything, but we certainly kind of want to treat them like they are. They literally will hear information coming from Anybody out there, an expert, if it's framed with communitarian and egalitarian values, they will feel threatened by it. Their brain shuts down in response to it. They're not going, I hate that guy, I don't believe in this. Their brain is wired to like misinterpret the info. So, long story short, I've been paying attention to the fact that like there's a lot of communitarian messaging and egalitarian ish messaging. And not as much about the individual and it was like too little too late so it was put a mask on we need herd immunity you do it more for other people than yourself and then at the same time it's you know later oh we'll put the mask on so you can protect yourself but but six months ago we were saying it doesn't actually do anything and like the confused messaging it's like well first we'll appeal to these values then we'll appeal to these values but they sound like they're literally contradictory and that we don't know what we're talking about and there are ways to craft communication that is open enough that anybody from any of those quadrants can find something that resonates. You've just got to be careful and thoughtful and design it deliberately. Right. And anyway, there's such a, there's such a wealth of really interesting stuff there. Uh, and it just pains me because I periodically, I come in contact with folks who work in right. that world and I'll do a podcast or an interview and I kind of open them up to this stuff. I'm just like, guys, just go read everything you can about identity protective cognition wherever you want to get the resource and use that to craft the messaging and that's that's there you go i mean there's an experience design but like it's basically thinking about how to actually deliberately design the communication right knowing that those frames or worldviews are going to be primed to feel threatened by certain things and affirmed by others and it is totally possible to affirm all of them without threatening any of them but you've got to really know those frameworks and not a lot of people do
1: i'm I'm really waiting for the protests um around the fact that I can't get service without shirt and shoes because that seems patently unfair to me <laughs> i haven't I have not seen those yet and I say that jokingly, but at the same time it is interesting how like masking became this thing where there's regulation, there's rules, there's requirements, there's uh, obligations that we don't choose but that are chosen for us that people Blithely go along with without giving it a second thought, but when something becomes activated in the space as an attack against your individual freedom,
2: yeah, right? it, like activates all these other little things, and everybody's looking like I. So seatbelts are one that I'm exactly. thinking mm-hmm. about a lot because when I was doing some of this work, I used the seatbelt example as an, as a good parallel to to build some. Basically, I was just building some like prototype messaging and testing it in the world. But take the seatbelt example. It's a, it's a mandate and it's a personal freedom thing. It's right. mandating that you wear something that is, yes, for your protection, but we're requiring you to do it. You no longer have the personal freedom of choice. And there's this interesting kind of parallel you can see with vaccines, which is some people are like, you should absolutely wear a seatbelt. For your own protection, because it saves you. But there's going to be somebody who's like, yeah, but I know my brother's cousins, mom's uncle's whatever was in an accident and he only survived because he didn't have a seatbelt on because the seatbelt would have trapped him or, you know, these absurd stories that are like one in a million, but their brain is wired to focus on that, that fear of that one instance. And that's like a red herring. It's not because they're really afraid of that. It's because they, they're reacting to the personal mandate Mm -hmm. and feeling trapped by having a limit on their freedom. And then the reverse, like people who are like, you should wear your seatbelt um, because it's it's safer for others. You know, some some people make the point that if you're not in a seatbelt, you are more likely to get thrown and you will hurt somebody else. Or if there are people in the back seat, they can move forward and hurt people in the front seat and things you don't hear about a lot, but some people kind of resonate with that. So I don't know. There's protect the self, protect the others. And th- th- it's, like, you're right. It, it polarizes and activates things that have otherwise been very settled and calm for a while. So I don't know. I'm waiting for helmet laws and, and, and seatbelt laws to come back into um, contention too. So we'll keep our eyes on that. And the uh, got <laughs> shoes, you know, open carry everywhere.
0: Exactly right.
2: Great, everything's gonna be great.
0: <laughs> Everything is gonna be great. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is really interesting too, and I, I'm, I'm curious in in the perspective of the idea of well, what does it mean to kind of prototype some communication opportunities around some of these spaces. You know, how has that? Um, I'd love to hear a bit about that process too, in terms of. Um, what does it look like to test those kinds of messaging? I mean, are there certain kinds of mediums or channels that you're thinking about in terms of being online or on television or on print? Um, and, and were there certain things that resonated more? I mean, I'm I'm interested in this too, because it's like, I, I'm also thinking of like Joseph Heinrich is a historian who also writes about like the, the weirdest people in the world, right? The idea of like what makes us Western educated individualist and, and rich and democratic. Yep. Yep. Um, and he talks about this, the kind of the, these identity models too, which I think are super interesting because it's like we are hardwired to to find those that are like us um, but it makes me just think about too like is are we able to design messaging that can help ink or like kind of push people or nudge them to think in a, in a slightly different format and what might that look like i know this is like this is a giant question for the morning yeah. <laughs> um, but I, lo- I love this framework of thinking you know it's like what does it, what <clears> what <throat> it look like to do that or you know or how, how have you played with that in the past
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I should obviously caveat all of this with, you know, what I'm referring to is like some work that I did in prototyping. This was work Mm -hmm. I did in grad school as part of my thesis. And it was, you know, I was basically scratching the very, very most surface level stuff. So I don't even really often trudge it out and talk about it a whole lot for that reason. But I can definitely Mm -hmm. answer the question in a second. But I also will point out, too, what's interesting is you even use the word nudge. And I've noticed that there was a lot of interest in this topic for uh, several years, especially right as I came out of grad school and I was, you know, speaking about it at different conferences and it's weird to talk about the same topic at like South by Southwest and then at like Mm -hmm. the American Association for the Advancement of Science (laughs) for real, but, um, but I, because, so because behavior change um, and the motivational psychology kind of movement that is just so, uh, just everywhere right now, and I think for very good reason, it's it's almost created this kind of false dichotomy of like, well, we don't need to worry about changing minds or attitudes because we're gonna just nudge the behavior, and if we get the outcome we want, like, why are we wasting our time trying to change minds? And I think that's very valid, and there are a lot of a lot of scenarios where trying to change someone's mind is this weird kind of fool's errand when what you're trying to do is help them achieve a goal that they can get by changing a behavior without having to do all that extra work up here. But I think there's a little bit of a danger there because so much energy goes there right now that there are folks working on. How do you still, how do you change minds? How do you actually change attitudes and perceptions? And uh, those guys aren't getting a lot of airtime right now, but mm. that's okay. It'll come back around. But as far as prototyping, um, communication, what I found, and this was like early week signals. So like, again, I didn't get into, and this was like 10 years ago or eight years ago. So didn't get into like really big, you know, kind of complex, what channels, et cetera. But what I found, and, and the way I did this was, I actually created a couple like educational or informational um, things. They were they were interactive pieces. They were meant to be like an inter- interactive infographic, if you will, and people would click through. And so the one in particular I mentioned was it actually just it, it drew parallels it modeled a conversation between two people talking about seatbelts and one of them is Mm -hmm. concerned about seatbelts. And one of them is trying to convince the other one, they should wear seatbelts or kids should wear seatbelts. And it's just like a dialogue. And then I basically literally repeated the exact same dialogue, but replaced the word seatbelts with vaccines. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. then I showed that to people and what I did, and I had, so the, you know, in the prototype, like the stimuli or however you want to think about this. uh, And this was done under a design research setting, right? So I wasn't, methods and whatever we can come back to, but Mm -hmm. there was, um, very deliberate choice in some of the language I was using designed to hit on those four worldviews. So I basically was hypothesizing that like this framing and this language is going to resonate with hierarchical individualists. This language and framing will resonate with communitarian egalitarians or or whatever. Uh, And so then I talked to the folks. I showed it to folks. I had a survey. Um, I asked a couple questions before and after about beliefs and I didn't follow them six months to see if any belief change persisted. So this is why I say throw all of my research in like You know, the the dumpster to the extent that it was just an exploration for design and it was not rigorous in the communication science sense. But I did find through multiple versions of that work, what was interesting was that I thought it was going to be like, well, this one resonated with these guys and this one resonated with these guys. And in fact, it was when the egalitarian communitarians saw the messaging designed to resonate with the hierarchical individualists, that made them go, oh, Never thought about that. I've always mm-hmm. been so oriented to think about the group dynamic and the responsibility to the, to the community. Never really thought about the fact that it is really good for me as an individual. And then, mm-hmm. same in the reverse. So, these guys, hierarchical individualists, were like, I've just never really thought about the responsibility to others. And you go, like, really? Really? You've never thought about that? But it's not they never thought about it. It was just having the framing that kind of opened up the opportunity for them to think about it differently. And uh, I think there's a lot of power there. And I've seen research over the last few years that that seems to be kind of taking more of that direction. And the idea is, again, you're not going to like fine tune and tailor the communication to be really uniquely different. Because that could, that could also be like disingenuous and kind of weird. You're not going to create different messages for different audiences. And even if we had the ability to do that kind of hyper personalization and know everybody's cultural worldview and appeal to it in our framing, can't do that. It's not feasible. So what is feasible and what is actually effective is being able to just avoid the framing or the language that is known to trigger the fears and the shutdown and those kind of evolutionary, like, I'm not buying this. My in-group doesn't buy this. And even if you're wrong and I'm wrong and we're all wrong together, I'm going to stick with my in-group because there's a lot of benefit for me staying aligned to my social in-group. So um, that kind of motivated cognition or reasoning, you can appeal to it by just ensuring that you don't trigger the the negative feelings and the, the threat that people get from certain framings. The other thing I'll just say briefly, I thought was so fascinating. Um, there was a study, I think the group at Yale did it where on climate change, they basically showed people the same information um, in different uh, like with different authors attached, you know, like different fake authors. And they showed it to is it about climate change, but it also included what to do about climate change. So it was one of them basically, they both had the same set of facts about the climate change is happening. And then one of them said, So we need to put a bunch of limits on human ingenuity and, and entrepreneur, you know, like cap and trade. It was all about limits to personal right. freedoms. And the other one then was like more appealing to the communitarians, like we needed to, you know, do this, you know, whatever. And they found that the folks who who are hierarchical individualists who are already predisposed to not Believe climate change is happening because, in order to accept that, it's a threat to the worldview based on how it's often communicated. When they read these two articles in the two forms, when the hierarchical individualists read the version that suggested that solutions were to rely on human ingenuity, to that we'll use things like geoengineering to solve this problem, that weren't framed in a "we're bad, we need to like you know help e- each other and put limits on ourselves for the benefit of the, the community." not only were they like, oh, okay, I'm more open to that solution. They also were more likely to change their mind and say they believed in climate change. Like Mm -hmm. literally the belief change happened. So that's a bit circuitous of an answer, but there's some really good research about it. And I think largely the challenge is that it's, it's about how do you build a message with, with the right framing and language that just avoids threatening the different worldviews and leaves open space for them to go, Oh, oh, I've not thought about it from that angle. And that's different. And I'm not being like forced and it's not being jammed down my throat. And for me to accept a different point of view has to be as little threatening as possible to all the factors that make Mm -hmm. me not want to do it, which as you guys know, there are a lot of them, right? right? So, um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always
1: amazed at how many people actually never thought about that. Um, and you know, when you said, you know, I'm not saying they never thought about that. Well, I'll, I'll say they never thought about that because, you know, as an educator, I know you're an educator now, but you're also a former educator, you know, of teaching high school. There's a lot of people who've never thought about that, whatever the, that is. Yeah. And yeah, the kind of sociology I do, the kind of anthropology Adam does has been called sociology, the obvious where you state things and people go, well, yeah, of course. But then why did you never think about that? Yeah. And so, when with your work and you know thinking about systems and design yeah. and getting people to think about that, are you also surprised how often people never thought about that <laughs> when you're kind of drawing like this big picture <laughs> for people? Yes and no,
2: <laughs> for exactly that reason. Um, I'm not surprised because you know, like you guys, at this point, I've had enough exposure to so many different types of people and so many types of scenarios that. I I see it and I know that there's a lot of stuff out there that people don't think about or if they don't think about it but it's not an active choice for example again like if accepting or thinking about something is going to feel uncomfortable we've got a whole lot of different like mechanisms we've evolved that like stop us from thinking about it like don't maybe don't think about that because right. like that's cognitively painful that's emotionally painful that's going to hurt you socially like and so uh, I'm not surprised by it in that sense, because there are a lot of really good reasons that people do it. Side note to that. When I would give this talk uh, years ago about some of this research, I would often get questions that were like, well, these folks, they're they're just irrational. This is, this is people, this is humans being fundamentally irrational. And I was like, you know what? Like F that concept, get your rational actor model out of here because this is actually the most rational thing we evolved To be this way, because look, if this guy comes running out of the field yelling at me like in the old caveman days that there's a lion out there in the tall grass, I can choose to believe him because he's part of my social in-group or not. And if he's making it up and he's lying and he doesn't know what he's talking about, what's the worst that happens? Nothing. I run away from nothing and I live. If I don't believe him because I'm like, show me the proof, I get eaten so like when people want to lob the like, you know, people are idiots and they're irrational. I'm like, nah, man, they're they're literally doing what their brains have evolved to do. And we just have to fight the fact that we don't live in the world that our brains evolved for anymore. But I am surprised at times by how open people are to actually consider what we're talking about, like other worldviews or just whatever it is. Um, but without actually internalizing it or integrating it or assimilating or accommodating it, whichever models you want to be thinking about. I, I find that really intriguing. And it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and in, in conjunction with lots of other stuff. What is the like independent variable if we had to oversimplify it, right? To say like what means when somebody has an experience or takes in new knowledge, some people are are gonna like literally modify their existing schema and mental model to take in that new knowledge and come out with an updated schema. And right. other times people are going to cram it in there, but make sure the schema stays the same. And then other times it just breaks the whole thing. And, and you know, these, there are models and thoughts around a lot of this. And I know that the world of psychology and, and probably to an extent, sociology and anthropology of, are doing a lot of work to understand this. And I've you know read a lot about correlations with personality traits or other experiences, why things lead to post-traumatic growth instead of disorder. But I think there's something there that we have yet to figure out and it would take away some of the surprise.
1: I I like the thought about the person who um, was in the field when the person came running out and, you know, saying there's a lion coming, that person who got eaten was the original person who wanted to do his own research. That's right. Yeah. I I don't know. I was, I, I did my research and I don't think that there's a lion coming. I mean, I've seen some things, You know, wake up, sheeple. There's no lion coming. And then that's a person gets eaten.
2: Well, those are the people who now have covid, you know, weren't wearing masks, didn't get vaccinated and got covid. But but the complicating factor here is in this case, it wasn't a lion. It was like a cat, you know, and it didn't kill you. So all it does is reinforce this. the Like, oh, yeah, you can you can do your own research. You were you were fine. You're going to be fine each time you screw it up. Until one day you're not, until one right. day it is a lion. And how do you convince someone when they've got repeating data points telling them, no, it wasn't a lion. So it's like, you, you're not going to, you're not, you basically can't, all right, here's another metaphor for you. And you guys are going to quickly learn shit. She's full of metaphors and I hate this, but in the field of rhetoric, you're maybe familiar with the idea of a stasis. And um, I can't remember actually, Gary, I might've been talking about this with you last time. There's the concept of like what stasis of discourse is happening at. And if if people are having a conversation or, or or discourse of any kind, if they're not at the same stasis, it's not going to be productive. And in in like classic rhetoric, the, the stasis are. Uh, like the first one is just a question of whether something exists or not. If you're arguing over whether something exists, you know, you have to be both arguing that same point. Uh, the next stasis is, um, okay, we agree it exists, but a value judgment of some kind. Is it good? Is it bad? You know, then the next one is, what do we do about it? If we agree that it's bad or intervention is required, what do we do? And then the next one is like jurisdiction, like who is who has the right and so on. And, you know, again, these have been like modified over the years, but I often hear it kind of like people are just at different stasis and don't realize it. So this person's talking about, the question of whether something is happening is, is this, is this real? Is climate change real? Is it not? When somebody else is arguing what about what we should do about it, you know, cap mm. and trade versus other interventions, they're going to talk right past each other. And they right. just don't realize same thing with vaccination mask mandates. You know, some people are like, it, we shouldn't mandate them. We should make them optional, but but they're sort of operating on an assumption that we all agree that masks are a good idea. And other people are like, I don't know if I still buy that yet. So when we talk about like problems and and solving these problems that, you know, are a challenge to, public health, basically, or just experience more broadly, I think sometimes this kind of concept of different stasis is useful because people are not having discourse on the same stasis. And I ask myself, how as designers, could we enable that rather than trying to force the outcome of the of the discourse itself? How do I just get people on that same plane with each other? And then something more productive comes out of it, in theory.
0: <laughs> it, it seems like on on some level, it's like we have to we have to kind of get more I can't think of a better term than this sorry more primal with our designs right we have to kind of get a little bit more to our architecture
1: yeah
0: um you know in our in our our heads I suppose and, and like for this idea because it's like on the other side of this right like like good politics is getting people riled up in terms of not talking to each other and like they not recognizing actually there are these like this is this I mean that's actually a really good um set of examples in terms of like the, the field of Stacey's from rhetoric and, and like recognizing that so oftentimes, like when there is social public health problems like this or challenges, it's because they are just talking past each other. Right. And so it's less like, would we all, it's one of those elements that, that um I now can't remember who said this, but it's just this thing. It's like, nobody is, is like pro child poverty, Um, you know, but yeah. like we, we disagree on, on like how it would be to, to best to make sure that kids are taken care of. Right. So like, that's the interesting idea that like you actually have things that, that people agree on across political spectrums in this case or public health spectrums, but um, like the delivery mechanisms is where people may get, may get caught up. But like recognizing that, like, we do also have common ground we can start with as well, which, which I think is fun. But I, I think to your point, like, how can we, or like, how might we bring our design thinking spaces? I don't mean design thinking, but our thinking about design uh, to, uh, to these arenas where we can have those kinds of productive conversations to get folks to be like, turns out you're actually talking about what this exists and I'm talking about what do we do about it and like we have to actually clue in together here first before we can even have the other conversation um is that honestly just being like hey everybody slow down like let's let's uh, let's think for a second together. like there actually is a little bit more space here we're arguing about the wrong thing
2: I think Um, it is but I think it's I mean forgive me okay (laughs) I'm gonna say the word it's having some empathy like it's Mm. it's having It's having or developing a rigorous level of qualitative and effective understanding of somebody to have empathy, but it's not like the business design thinking version of empathy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, hey, this person has fundamentally different values for me. Like in a different world, I'd be like, that person is a terrible, awful, garbage human being, and I want nothing to do with them. Having the courage, right? Because it's an act of, it's, it's, it's scary right. To like, even say, I'm going to engage with those folks. Um, It's scary because of what it might mean for your own standing in your own social in group or political identity or whatever it is. And it's scary because you're going to go up against and maybe even touch a way of thinking that is icky or hard or whatever. So first off, like just asking someone to have the courage to have some empathy or some compassion, and then also really teasing apart the fact that empathy is not endorsement. So like I can really deeply and trained like social sciences researchers, I think are great at this. I think design folks, if they've got a similar kind of training, especially in design, ethnography or whatever, also good. But like, this is kind of what it comes down to is understanding that I can go and be with and understand without having to m- my, make my presence an endorsement of or an allegiance to. And so if I want to actually engage with people that are completely opposite from me, or if I want to facilitate that among other people to talk to each other and not be at different Stacies, it's like, well, you got to start from figuring out where that common ground is to your point. And the challenge is that these are just tropes that people use now that become meaningless. Mm-hmm. Find common ground, talk across the aisle and empathy. Like I want to throw the word empathy in the ocean and never see it again. <laughs> but it's like what it's what we need here. And I used to, I, this is out there in the world, I'm sure people are going like, to quit using this metaphor, but like, you know, dogs, I have a dog and he picks up all kinds of garbage on our walk. And I learned very quickly when I was a, a young dog owner, dogs dog's not going to eat everything they put in their mouth. Part of what dogs are doing is literally picking up something to feel it with their tongue. They're, they're like, just, it's like another hand for them. And they're kind of just checking it out. Smell, taste, feel, they'll spit it out. They don't want to eat it. Some will, some won't, but like, you know, they're depending on the, how juicy the garbage is. I think it's kind of like that. I will, and this maybe is the natural ethnographer in me, I don't know, but like I will gladly go into quote enemy territory and I will sit if I'm not in danger, like metaphorically speaking, take it all in and not be afraid that I'm going to absorb by osmosis these terrible ideas. But I don't think a lot of people know that about themselves Mm -hmm. or, or that they don't have the confidence or the courage or the understanding that, again, having empathy, building understanding, seeing someone's humanity doesn't mean you endorse their views or their identity or their actions. It just makes it possible that you can actually eventually find that common ground. Mm. But I don't know. This is one of the places I've been thinking a lot lately and I have no answers yet because I'm thinking like, well, how do, you, how do you convince people of that?
1: There's a really nice book called Against Empathy. I think it was also, I think the author was also at that school you mentioned, uh, Yale. Mm. Um, you know, and this idea that empathy is a bridge too far. It's really not possible, nor required to yeah. do, you know, to treat people like human beings. Right. This idea that you have to kind of walk in their shoes. And and I was just reading uh, something that was written by Mark Marin, um, where he went to the uh, African-American Museum in uh, Washington, D.C. And he's like, you know, how do you get how do you develop, quote unquote, empathy for the experiences of people that you could never really understand? And is that even required to understand what the right thing would, you know, whatever that right thing is? And I do think yeah. there are right things. Right. It's not just all relativistic based on your own perception and perspective, you know, and do we need it? And this, like, I appreciate when you said, you know, the business design thinking, you know, framing of empathy, you know, you need empathy so you can create a better persona or, you know, and we're going to do that by, you know, some, some basic version of qualitative research that really doesn't get at the lived experiences and the the true perspectives that, that it's required to really understand where people are coming from and what their worlds are like.
2: Yeah. I honestly, I, I that's why I joke, but I mean, I I see two people making t- two types of folks making arguments against the concept of empathy in design in the design world more broadly. One are the group of people that are like, no, I don't want to have empathy for everybody. It's sort of aligned with the like. If we have tolerance for the intolerant, like, what do we do? What do we create for ourselves? An awful world, right? And I think that there, there might be, there's something there, but I don't know. I, I, I think that's, they're arguing against a straw man, basically. I don't think that that's as big of a danger as we're worried about. I don't think we're literally saying, let's have so much empathy and compassion for everybody that everyone, no rules, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. you know, the concept of any kind of social norms go out the window. Everyone's allowed to do everything. Like that's a pretty far leap. So I feel like there's a little bit of a straw man thing happening there, but the other school of thought is more aligned to what you're talking about. I haven't read that book, but I'm, 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 I've heard of it. And I'm sort of familiar with some of the arguments and I kind of tend to agree. You know, there's a little bit of a, I just think the word has become meaningless at this point. It's, and I I've actually started using the word compassion more deliberately, because at least in my mental model compassion has a word uh, has the implication of action with it so it's not just i have empathy because i listened or talked or you know built up some data points in my head that helped me kind of understand what i think your way of thinking or doing things is and what good is that i don't care what are you going to do with that knowledge and so the word compassion comes in for me because it's taking something away from that experience or from building that knowledge and then acting on it so acting with compassion and again you know, there are people out there who fine. once I've interacted with them and built up a really good understanding of what makes them tick and, and their, their values, I might, I might be like, cool, I want nothing to do with you. And I actually don't want to invest time and energy and even trying to change your mind. Cause I think it's going to be futile, but that's okay. Like that's a reasonable outcome of that process. And it doesn't mean that trying to have that understanding, you know, was, was a total waste of time. And again, it builds more data points about the dynamics that are at play at large. So I, I think a lot of, a lot of, chief design strategy officer at local design agency says she hates (laughs) design thinking (laughs) Um, but i'm kind of in that crowd and what's funny is like i am both i both hate all the buzzwords but i also like will use them all the time because they're not without their purpose and uh there's a beautiful cognitive dissonance that you can just really hang out and swim around in and say listen every single one of these words Uh, Design thinking, human centered design. What what are the differences between user design and are we talking about users or customers and employees and so it's like on one hand they're all meaningless. So great, there's so much freedom in being able to define them for yourself and define them for your practice or for the people that you're collaborating with. Um, But not let it not let it you know tear you up inside that there isn't some globally like unified version of the way that we all work and talk about it. But I think empathy is just, I don't know, it's got to go. I like the the idea of with you know some action or outcome or or choice made based on a deep understanding of people's values and motivations. That's what empathy is to me. But the rest of the world, I don't know, sees it that way. So we can call it something else and we can just quit using the word empathy.
1: Well, the title of the podcast is going to be Chief Design Strategy Officer at Local Design Company Hates Empathy and Design Thinking. So thank you for...
2: Great. Really great. Can't wait. That's wonderful. I will, I will absolutely reshare it on all my channels. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny too. Cause I, I actually find myself more often in opposition to people making that argument. Like, do you remember, I think a year or two ago, there were a lot of think pieces about <clears throat> design thinking is dead and design thinking is awful. And um, I'm, I'm very much like, you know, there are all the two by twos out there. When you think about design, uh, as a practice for experts versus like very collaborative and, and participatory and you know that i'm all the way at that end i am very much of the mindset that like if it were up to me and we could put designers out of work and we become facilitators of other people doing the design they need on their own lives like all for it all for it so like i'm as collaborative uh as pro participatory co-design methods and and um stances as possible but when people get into this whole like design thinking's dead and it's time to like abandon the entire thing because the business world has ruined it and corrupted it. And it's meaningless. Which is like basically what I was saying five minutes ago. I find myself on the opposite side of that argument being like, just because that's happened doesn't mean that we need to like, take this like equivalent kind of toddler tantrum and be like, you ruined my thing. So I'm going home. Like, okay, you guys can ruin this thing, but it doesn't ruin it for me. I'm still going to get out there Try to understand what makes people tick. Try to understand their mental models. Understand their goals. Figure out what I might have. I might have a tool that they don't because I have a training or, or a perspective that they don't. And I'm going to dig that tool out of my toolbox. And I'm going to either hand the tool to them. I'm going to teach them how to use the tool. Whatever metaphor you want, that's designed to me. That's experience design. I don't care if you call it design thinking. I don't care if you use the word empathy. And um, you can ruin it if you want. You can ruin it for me. So... It's tough. I feel like those arguments are just good Twitter traffic generators. That's all.
0: That's right. Not not discourse generators, right? Right. Traffic generators. Traffic. Um, Yeah. No, but like that's 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 a great point. Um, You know, and it's this has got me thinking about. uh, You know, this even cycles back to kind of our our original points we were thinking through in terms of worldview. Right. It's that like when saying design thinking is Dan is basically saying. If you just put parentheses in front of that, it's like my perception of what design thinking is is dead, you know. But like people don't say that, and but recognizing that like the, the like there's something they find that they don't like about the, the current output. But I think you're, yeah. you're right on there too. Where it, it's, um, we can a we don't need to have a temper tantrum when we don't like the way that someone else is using something. And then on top of that, doesn't mean we need to throw it out. Um, to use another, you know, I'm going to use a lame metaphor: of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right? So yeah. It's like it's like it's interesting to kind of recognize that. There is continued value and power in terms of understanding others, right? And what does it mean <laughs> to take the space and time to do that? And like, I mean, that's always, I mean, that also is what we evolved to do, right? As a species, like really? we are a fundamentally social species, um, we would be dead. Like we, you know, I mean, the fact that babies can't even do it. We can't do any, We couldn't survive on our own until we're like 10 years old. <laughs> like good luck species, <laughs> you know, um, and, ten, and 10 maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's like, it's interesting just to even, even, See how like the idea of this the individualist communal thing. because I mean, I'm thinking about this too in, in the broader sense in terms of like worldviews and how we you know we even set up you know largely unconsciously like the like this individual versus collective dichotomy as a thing that is like in, in tension, right? Um, is interesting to me to even and this. It's a it's a big a big question too. But even like in terms of a systems design perspective, it's it's just like this is something that's I, I always find one of the most intriguing challenges is because it is worldview. Um, and then, you know, it becomes to the point of like, it's threatening. If you say anything else that doesn't, that doesn't point towards that and says you're threatening my, my individual freedoms. And, and even all of these ideas in terms of um, reflecting in the like, the design thing is dead. Empathy is dead, blah, blah, blah. You know, like that we take the terms and kill them too. So it's like this really interesting reactionary approach to a lot of these, these elements. And so it's like, I guess I, I'm also just mulling through an idea in terms of, um, cause something else you said up top that, that caught my attention was that we are getting a lot of in the literature and just kind of in like, in business and design land, we see a lot of stuff around behavioral change and behavioral design, right. But we don't get a lot about perceptual design, um, or, or kind of like mental model changing perhaps. And so I'm curious about that element in, 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 are there folks that should be getting press or ideas like that you run across that you want to see more of? Um, A, because I want to read them, (laughs) but also uh, I think it's a really, really fascinating arena that I agree. We don't hear, we don't hear enough about.
2: Two things that I want to definitely respond to Um, one really fast, and then I'll come back to the behavior change versus perception change, because I love that you mentioned intention. And I, that's kind of what gets me a lot of days when I think about this is that it almost feels to me like the word design as the way we're kind of using it broadly in the world now. It goes back to that definition by um, Herbert Simon, right? It's like, it's, it's designing, it's creating, you know, current situations into preferred ones, but it's, it's Mm -hmm. purely to me, when do we start doing something with intention versus just having it happen or unfold the way that it has without conscious, deliberate, thoughtful care in, in the creation or whatever of something and take human centered design as a term people, you know, we started using it years and years and years ago. The reason we use the word human-centered was because it was in contrast with what came before. Mm -hmm. We weren't consciously, proactively thinking about the humans on the other end of the thing, mostly, for a long time. And then eventually we started thinking like, oh, yeah, maybe I should think about the user and what their needs are and how they're going to engage with this. And and thus, human-centered design was born to think about the human on the other end of the experience. Now, of course, everyone's like, well, human-centered design is an old, outdated, and problematic term because it centers an individual and it centers humans. And what about the planet and the ecosystem and the fact that we shouldn't mm-hmm. center an individual, we should center communities, we should center humanity, humanity-centered design. Okay. Okay. Well, that's great. And I'm like totally on board with it. But to my mind, it doesn't mean that what human, human-centered human design was when it became a concept was bad. It is an mm-hmm. evolution. And that mm-hmm. same thing is happening in communication design and it's happening in systems thinking. And it's happening where we are going from a place that didn't have conscious awareness of the factors and the, the creation of these things. And I say things, it could be products, could be experiences to a place where we are consciously thinking about them. The intention part is the key. So, mm-hmm. so communication design about the topic we've been on I think what we're what we're finding is that it's we're we're just kind of on the cusp of that trajectory, that same trajectory. We're obviously just way behind, but but people didn't even have this awareness. Nobody was ever even consciously thinking about a lot of these things up till probably I don't know fifteen years ago. Um, so just by virtue of first building the awareness of the fact that these dynamics exist, that identity product, product, protective cognition influences how people take in information, and that it's not just a information deficit model of education where we just get them the data and they'll change their mind. Like That's been so disproven for so long and yet people mm. still harbor that myth about teaching and learning. So I just really wanted... like You said the word intention and I was like, that's it right there in a nutshell is that we there are areas where we have good understanding and then we can be very intentional about the things, the communication, the products, the services, the experience, the systems that we're building. And in other situations and other domains, we are not intentional because we don't know mm. how to be because we don't even have the awareness that we're not yet. We'll get there. But coming back to the other thing you mentioned at the end, I think, excuse me, largely one of the reasons that behavioral science and behavioral science influence design is, is kind of has taken over in a way. And I think it's very good. Don't, don't get me wrong in my smirk and my snark about it. Um, but I think that it's largely because it leads to outcomes, especially mm-hmm. in places like health and healthcare experience design um, or financial. You know, you're you're trying to change behaviors and you're trying to get people to do things that'll help them be healthier and help them reach their goals and wellness and help them reach their savings and wealth needs and goals. And you are trying to change a behavior. So of course the proven frameworks and methods for behavior change are are where people put that energy. And because design that we're talking about has been part of the business landscape, what, what does business care about outcomes? Mm -hmm. Right. So of course, now you ask, what about, well, like, you know, perception change design. I would love, I would love it if like right now on this podcast, we've coined a new form of design, which is like mindset or attitude or perceptive perception change design. Um, But I think to your point, there's not enough people talking about it across the design and like research Mm. divide. Um, I, I felt often in grad school, like I was the only person who was like talking to designers about communication and risk design and talking to communication and risk design experts about experience design. And like, I've seen more of this. So you asked about links and stuff. I'll, I'll think of them all after we're done chatting and I'll send you guys some links, but really that's the field to look at is, Risk and science communication, even when we're not talking about topics related to it, um, if you get on, you know, hashtag like Sci of sci Com because it's the science of science communication and risk communication, where I see a lot of people connecting the dots between the like sociological and um, kind of motivational models for people and their worldview and and their values and the way we communicate with them. And I'm slowly starting to see some people kind of trickle in the fact that you're designing communication, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I say communication, but that, that broadly programs, interventions, right. Not literally just words on a screen. So yeah, I don't know. There's also, I'll send you a link later too. I, I had a, like the talk that I've given on this, I've given lots of different versions of it, but at one point in the last couple of years, I like re-recorded it in the middle of the pandemic because it was just kind of having a moment again. This is one of those topics that like, I don't talk about for years at a time and then suddenly it becomes relevant again, like right now and I'm like, oh shit. So I'll send you the recording of that and cool. you can check it out. I think there's some stuff in there that'll probably give you some more places to dig. Awesome, so- love it though. Sounds like my wardrobe. You
1: know, it's like, you know, every 10 years
2: it comes around and is relevant. And then
1: after that, it's it's, it's gone again.
2: Totally. Totally. It's funny how that works, because people that I know from grad school mm-hmm. and people that I met in the years following that world are very much part of the, again, the science and risk communication community. Yeah. And a lot of those folks know a little bit about design, maybe because of their interactions with me or, or just because design thinking is kind of huge. But, but then I've got this whole other community that I'm part of, which is experience design and and, um, design strategy and, and the world that I've lived in now for about 10 years. And then there's also, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the educator part of me and those, those communities. And I've had this conversation with a lot of people that, that they ask, like, well, what, what do we, what do we need? Like, what's missing? And I'm like, People aren't talking to each other. Like these domains don't know how to talk to each other. They're not always even aware that the others exist. I went to Carnegie Mellon, which has a Social and Decision Sciences Department, um, which is like this uniquely powerful, amazing place where a lot of amazing research happens around behavior and decision science. And I was in in grad school, the Experience Design and Information Design and Service Design and Systems Thinking program over in this like other building. And I went over the SDS department because i wanted to talk to a lot of that faculty and take some courses and they were still of the belief that design is like the font and the color right and like, you guys are here on the scene now that's no slight on carnegie mellon because actually that's changed and they've long been one of the most interdisciplinary institutions i've ever been aware of so let me send some love that way but that's a good example where even in thinking about what is happening now in communication around you know covid or just bigger bigger challenges out in the world that have nothing to do with communication there are people who have knowledge that other people need to connect with and they just don't know how to connect each other and i really think design as a field that doesn't have its own subject matter expertise like that's what's beautiful about design if you are a designer in theory you are you, are, you have skills and you are a facilitator and a connector, but design right. does not have its own subject matter expertise. It's meant to connect different areas of subject matter expertise. And uh, I think that's a really important challenge and maybe the greatest opportunity for designers like in the next century.
1: One of the things that uh, I I was thinking about creating a new program, one of the pieces I would want to have as a program is maybe a course or a seminar on community organizing. Um, One of my professors in grad school had a great term he called social brokering. And as ethnographers, we often exist in these liminal in-between spaces because we don't belong to any one group. But as systems thinkers, we are aware of all these groups and we move between them. I know Adam's dissertation involved this. I know my dissertation involved this. It's this idea of. Message delivering, facilitating, connecting, building coalitions to create a certain kind of yeah. opportunity and outcome, and that it's not just as you said the font or how to make a prototype or how to use um, post-it yeah. notes effectively, but it's about how do you bring people together. And I don't know that uh, programs do a lot of training in from those you know because there are, there are as you said there are fields that may independently do these pieces, right? They are community organizing programs. Yeah. But yet those programs are never part of design thinking or experience Mm -hmm. design uh, programs because why would they be? Well, of course, they would need to be because as a designer, especially from a systems perspective, you got to connect people. And there's a methodology you can learn from to teach you how to do that. Yeah,
2: that's the key. There are humans out there who've done the work who know how to be effective. You don't have to invent it just because you're a designer and you pretend you're like the first one to understand that this needs to happen. And that's... You know, you said what you're talking about is like it's Buchanan's like orders of design, right? And we're talking about this fourth order. It's not communication and symbols. It's not like individual products. It's not just interactions and experiences. It's systems and programs and connections. And I think that's where, like I say, facilitator that becomes the skill set. But I and I was just talking about a good buddy of mine about this um, the other day. There's so much right now that is happening. It has been for several years where I think people in the design community, especially the ones that like to operate at this level. And this is like no shade at the designers who are like, yo, I make screens beautiful. I make a button really obvious. I know, I know how to make this interaction super simple, like no shade, man. We need that. That's huge. But we are talking about kind of like an altitude or two above that. And I think largely um, there's this kind of pattern I'm watching where designers that are trying to operate at that altitude are basically saying like oh 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 this is like social work or oh this is this is community organizing or oh this is this is this is caregiving oh wait this is education and suddenly they're like in trying to invent things that i want to just grab somebody and be like hey look over there there's a 200 year history of that right. discipline doesn't have the word design in it, but guess what? You could go get to know those folks, get to know their methods, train with them. And I think the future of design is that it basically kind of slowly finds existing disciplines that have been around much longer and are well established and well, well proven out and kind of pretends like it's invented that field. And then when it's done doing that, it goes to the next one and to the next one. And it's like colonizing existing like (laughs) worlds and, and not by, you know, again, not by like conscious choice or, or like, it's just the lack of knowledge that as a designer, you're, you're better off training as like every other possible profession and then bring them together. And that's design. That would be my dream. I love the idea of a program where you take like maybe one or two foundational design courses, and then it is, it's is—it's a little rhetoric. It's a little social work. It's anthropology. It's sociology. Uh, it's communication design. I mean, everything else in the mix. Psychology.
0: So, my, my, I'll,
2: I'll get that degree. Yeah. Yeah, me too. My <laughs> dream. So when I was a classroom teacher, and, and even to this day now, the, the course that I teach at the college level, but my dream course would just be a course that's like Figure it out with Miss Brazelli. And like there's no, there's no defined, like I might have things that I want us to cover, but this level of like bring questions, bring ideas, bring problems to solve. And we either either I have the knowledge that as the teacher I'm sharing and whatever, here it is, we'll explain it, or we figure it out together. And the means by which we go after that knowledge is not that I instill in you a way, but that you learn the skills to go connect all these disparate domains, because connecting disparate domains is what I think design as a field is, is about, or at least it is for me. It's why I'm in this field. So maybe I'm, you know, it's just my one view. But,
0: but it's a good view. Um, I like, it's funny too. Cause it's like, even, even, you know, from getting an anthropology education, it's, we, we were often taught that it was like you do the anthropology of something. And so therefore you're supposed mm-hmm. to, you're supposed to get to know the other, the other thing, film arena area group of people that that you then, you know, learn with from um, but it's funny because like i i always found myself attracted to design in the latter part of, of graduate school um and i to the extent that i like ricojiggered my my ethnographic field work to be participatory design oriented um because i was uncomfortable with the fact that anthropology is typically premised on like study but don't touch um you know and then which which to be fair, comes out of like, you know, disdain for our colonial roots, um, and, in enterprise roots. It's like, I understand where it came from, but then recognizing that like the world does need intervention though. Right. And so we can't just study and do nothing. Um, and so it's, it's even this, it's, I, I, I found this early dialogue for me also very productive of like, how do we think with design as trying to, you know, bring about desired outcomes. Then think about that in a way of doing it with others and for them. And, and basically like basically on their own terms, what they're looking for, how they can do it, you know? I don't know. So, so I agree with you there too, where it's just like, uh, I mean, it's, it's also just—it seems like also in, in education, there's a there's this big trend too in terms of like we have to bust down these silos that we we artificially built because it helps us give credits in college, right? Yeah. Um, and to know what degree you get, but like really um, you know, I'm, I'm with Laura Nader in terms of, we need more generalists in this, in this kind of regard that like
2: liberal arts, man. Like I, and I've watched as an educator, like, you know, that pendulum swings, it's like, we need STEM. We need You know? Yeah, we do. I majored in physics. Like I'll be the first to to argue for the power of our science and technology (laughs) programs, but, but that pendulum swing from, we need thinkers to, we need people who are going to go out and become tradespeople and like vocational training. And like, it's such a that pendulum I want to rip out and throw away because it's such a it's a false dichotomy of, oh, well, you can either get a training in something quote useful and go out in the world and do, or, you know, you can study how to think and how to learn and then have that be this thing that pays dividends for you and everybody you interact with for the rest of your life. And they do not have to be mutually exclusive. Like they are not, but so many believe that they are because they've not personally experienced how they can live together. So that's my vision for the future of education. After we burn down all the existing systems, uh, (laughs) we basically teach people how to connect disparate domains and we build a, a sort of, I don't know, a mechanism or an infrastructure for that. But I really appreciate and love that, you know, what you said about doing something about it. You know, there are a lot of people who pick up on sort of ethnographic methods because I think they like being able to maintain the expert floating above or outside of, even if they're in, you know, immersed and embedded in something to study it. There's a level of like, I think people cling a bit to be like, I'm in, but I'm not really with. And Mm. um, that's fine for certain areas of study. For all the reasons you mentioned, but if your goal is to make some kind of improvement in the world or to, I like to think about it more like I don't care about having a lasting impact. I never got into design because I wanted to make something that was going to exist in the world for mm-hmm. other people. to use. like, I don't care. And I know that makes me unique. I'm not a maker, <laughs> dare I say. But I like the idea of empowering other people. That's really where mm-hmm. I go. And I think that's the key is like you've eventually you do have to kind of put a stake in the ground and either design interventions or facilitate people solving their own problems. Um and that means a different mindset from this expert mindset who looks at people as study objects to participatory mindset, you know, code, right. co-designing mindset. So here here to that. I'd like to see more of it. I'm doing my small baby part in the process of trying to encourage more of it. It
1: was always interesting uh, in the kind of sociology that I was raised reared to doing that the the the, the the greatest expert in the room is the person you're studying and you Absolutely. are the least knowledgeable in the room because Absolutely. you're not the expert. And the, one of the goals was, you know, could you become expert in so that you're recognized by other experts as having competence and then using that, you know, it sends out participant observation, it's participant observation combined. It's yep. observant as participant and participant abs observer. It's this yep. ability to be competent in the practices, but also have reflexivity to examine, analyze, in a way that the insider couldn't because you're able to, you have this outsider perspective of gaining competence <laughs> and that, you know, it's always interesting when uh, people are uh, penalized for being competent. Yep. You know, in anthropology yep. and sociology, you're a little too close to this. Oh, so you're saying I know too much about it and it would be better if I knew less. So in yep. what world does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Yep. You
1: know, but that's but that this, this is I think where the sciences were and where the sciences are going is especially with you know younger people today is I want to be able to have an impact of some kind, I want to be able to make a change of some kind. I just want to be a passive observer. I want to be able to come engaged. And our job as educators or as chief design strategy officers is to you know create opportunities for them to get the skills, get the intentionality, yep. develop the perspectives to be able to, you know, have that kind of impact and that kind of change. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think there's a sort of need, uh, this isn't to say that like arrogance is this huge problem, but I think where people get stuck or where they end up down that road to say, well, you've built up all this expertise. You're too close to this. There, there, there is a tendency to build up that expert blind spot. And I think in, in training in you know, through, again, if you're studying anthropology or sociology, other types of social sciences, I think, we have a good history of how to avoid developing that expertise mm-hmm. blind spot. Um, but designers are a little behind on that trajectory. And then so they develop that right. kind of arrogance, even if they think and believe that they truly value a, a user's uh, experience and expertise in their own lived you know, experience. Um, so it's, it's sort of that question of integrating or baking in the, the, the humility that needs to needs to persevere and needs to sort of be the kind of core of a lot of it. So I don't know. Good, good luck though. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to solve that one, but it's sort of part of the bigger picture. So,
1: I, I, another quick question I got to ask though is: I was looking at your bio, and it's uh, you know you're so you're so um, you're so committed to communication. You're so committed to creating understanding, shared intelligibility, of connecting theory into practice. How does that relate to your love of bands with unintelligible lyrics? So it seems like you swing <laughs> the other direction from you know spending time being intelligible and creating yeah. intelligibility to liking music in which there is a, you know, a marked lack of intelligibility.
2: (laughs) I like that you asked that. It's a very good question. Good, close (laughs) reading. Um, Basically that's my code for saying like, I listen to a lot of metal. I listen to a lot of really harsh, noisy music. And um, what's funny is it's not as, um, it actually fits together more nicely than it probably comes off, which is that I think so, for example, let's talk about metal. Let's talk about subgenres of metal like death metal, which are very hard to listen to if you're like uninitiated, and uh, it's an acquired taste. And they're not, like I say, listenable. But if you if you first start listening to something like really extreme metal, um, you hear noise. You hear a wall of noise, right? Like you kind of don't even know like where to enter into the space and what to latch onto and what to engage with. You just hear discordant guitars and you know, Cookie Monster grumbling vocals, and you're like, "This is absurd and stupid." But for whatever reason, if you are a person who has an entry point into that music, maybe there's a metal band that's more listenable or whatever the kind of gateway process is, which is a whole other podcast topic. Happy to, happy to walk you through it. <laughs> but basically, eventually you realize you're listening to a certain kind of metal. Like maybe you like Metallica, like very, you know, I say mainstream, but not in a negative way, but just very accessible metal, basic middle of the road metal. Okay. So you're listening to Metallica and over time, Metallica starts to sound not that extreme. And there are other types of music and you're not hunting the extreme sound. It's not like an addiction. You need like more of that, but it is just that it makes things more listenable at more and more extreme or unintelligible sounds and levels. So that over time you realize, wow, like I'm listening to this band that I love. I can hear the intricacies of of what the guitars are doing. It's not a wall of noise. I can hear the things the guitars are doing that are very complicated—they sound discordant, but they're not—and I can hear what the vocalist is saying in his Cookie Monster growls because I, I, my ears are trained for it. So it's almost like it's—it's it's the opposite of what you just said. It's actually very much the same concept of um, you know building up that kind of understanding that expertise being embedded in it and and developing an ear for something that you just couldn't hear before. And like, you know, kudos Gary, for that perfect question, because that's literally what we've just talked about for the last hour. Is it not, you know, basing your, 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 your stance on a place where you can hear things that you couldn't hear before, instead of seeing an other in a human, that's an other they're over there. They're different. You build up the ability to hear and see things that you couldn't hear or see before just by exposure and time embedded with, and some compassionate interaction with that, that person. So same thing with music. That's, that's why, you know, and I like other, other genres quite a lot, but usually when people put their bio and someone's like, well, put what you like. I'm like, well, I like, I like some pretty extreme metal that people are going to think is weird. So there you go.
0: (laughs) And metal brings us all together.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Are you guys fans of like, you know, metal or any specific kinds of bands? I
0: don't, I don't hate it.
1: Um, Okay,
2: (laughs) uh, (laughs) That's great.
1: Yeah. Well, it's int- Yeah. Growing up, especially in high school, all my friends, you know, we were, you know, quote unquote, the long hairs of the burnouts. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's what passes for metal. And it's, I think what's interesting here is the, is the, <laughs> is the oversimplification of genre. At the moment you're inside of it, you understand the nuance going yes. back to this, this point that you were making. And so if you're sitting there listening to Iron Maiden or, or, or versus Megadeth versus Metallica yeah. Where you go for or you get getting like flotsam and Jetsam or any of these other kinds of bands. it's you know, it's not all the same thing, right. but from the outside or someone who's not into it at all, it all sounds the same. Yeah. But once you enter into the people's worlds and you actually listen to what they have to say or play, yeah. you understand the nuance of it. And then once you start to recognize that there is nuance, you can start to understand what that nuance means to them and then how to listen. You yeah. know, it's going from, you know, just, it reminds me of this uh, in white men can't jump that whole scene about you can, you can hear Jimmy, you can listen to Jimmy, but you can't hear Jimmy Hendrix right. As a white person, you can't hear Jimmy Hendrix you know, and what is listening versus hearing yeah. um, mm-hmm. looking versus seeing, how do we, how do we activate those senses so that they're meaningful representations of people's lives? Yeah. And then how do we as designers translate that to other audiences or help the people themselves understand it so they can make decisions around how, you know, what, what design opportunities exist to make their lives better.
2: Yeah. That dynamic by which you build that understanding by which you, I would say train, but I don't like that verb, but like you train the ear, you train the eye, but we're not talking about it as like a classical exercise. It's just that process of going from, I hear all hard music as just noise to I can start to hear the nuances in what bands are doing, and I can hear the nuances in the subgenres and I can really appreciate all that. That process, I love it. I feel like I'm addicted to it. And I right. think the designers share a love for that, but not all, not all. But that process and I would look back and say that's arguably what I've done with everything I've done in my life and career is, is, you know, in my work, but also in my different pastimes and activities. I simplify it and I tell people I like being a beginner at things. I like how that feels. I like having to learn a new domain and connect things to mental models and schema in new ways. I like that. I get a dopamine rush out of it. Like it's on the level of I seek it, but um, it's not as simple as going to be a beginner it's wanting to to go through that evolutionary process to go from looking at like in the olden days, you download, uh, you're on the internet, you got your modem connecting you and the picture's loading on this, this like GeoCities site and it's super pixelated and blurry. But to go from the process where that picture slowly fills in, becomes higher resolution because the pixels fill in and you're now looking at, you know, it was like my background here, this blurry mess to suddenly this really high resolution, millions of pixels kind of picture. God, man, is that not the best, like, is that not the best, most human experience ever? And so I'm addicted to that feeling. And I wish that I could help a lot of other humans kind of have that same experience. I think some people are afraid of it, but once they have it, I think they become addicted too. And all it does is connect us more, you know, that's my like hippie, hippie end note for you.
1: It's a great, that's a great, that's a great end note, hippie end note. I love it. It is addictive. And yeah, you're totally right. And it's, uh, you know, that, that feeling of entering the field the first time and that uncertainty and that rush of it, of entering a new world, that sense of discovery, you're like, Oh, I'm going to learn some stuff today.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, It's just
1: awesome. Well, really appreciate the time today. This is great. Yeah. We could talk for a, a lot more. We
2: went like, I totally different direction than what I anticipated, which I love. <laughs> I love. I was like, cool. We'll talk for three minutes about communication design and then we'll get on to whatever topic we originally had in mind. And then then we didn't. So I love it.
0: We want to thank Jen Verselli, Chief Design Strategy Officer at Mad Power for taking us through her career and work. You can learn more about Jen and MadPow over at madpow.com. And of course, as always, we'll have links to all of this in our show notes. So as always, we want to hear from you. So hop in the conversation with us. What influences do you draw from in your own work that might be unexpected? Or what theories or concepts do you apply to your work and use these to then influence your thoughts and how you move forward? And also, what is your favorite type of cookie and or heavy metal band? And bonus points if you can let us know what is your favorite cookie-inspired heavy metal band? True. <laughs> right. As always, hop in the conversation, shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or join the conversation on our LinkedIn page.
1: And as always, we like to thank you for your continued support for the podcast, whether it be your financial support, your ideas, your words of encouragement, your are sharing the podcast with others or just sending us a nice thank you. We always appreciate all of that. It's great to hear that the podcast is filling up your day, is providing you with ideas and giving you inspiration. And I gotta say, email's been burning up recently, people are reaching out and we have some really exciting content coming up based on your suggestions. If you want to make a contribution to help support the cost of the podcast, to bring this great content to you, you can do so at our website by buying us a coffee. And if you want to sponsor an episode of Experience by Design, please send us a message, and we would love to do so. And once again, any feedback, any ideas, any thoughts, you can shoot those over to feedback at experiencexdesign.com, and you can go to our website and subscribe to be on top of all the most recent experience by design news and we might have some very exciting things in the offing in the near future so you want to stay on top of that so with that as always be safe be kind be healthy be well and please be here on the next experience by design